The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Guys, of anyone listening to the church, whether they were hearing the words of God or the words of men, in many cases, twisting the words of God to suit their own fancies and to pad their own pockets and to make people dependent upon them. And Luther challenged that. He challenged things like the authority of the Pope and the authority of councils. You see, in his day, the church taught that it wasn't the scriptures that were the ultimate authority for men and for women. It was the Pope and it was the councils who were the only ones wise enough to be able to rightly interpret the words written in the Bible. And as Luther began to study the scriptures and he he preached through the Psalms and he preached through Romans, he was convinced from the text of scripture that this was not what the Bible taught. That in fact, the Bible taught something altogether opposite. It taught that it was the final authority and it was fully sufficient for any man or any woman's life to know how to be right with God, to be made right with God and to live a life that honors him. Everything necessary to do those things is contained here, and here is the final authority. And it has no competition. And so Luther challenged the authority of popes, and he challenged the authority of indulgences. As you saw in the clip again, the selling of forgiveness for coins. And as he challenged the church, the church doubled down in its sort of pushback and its, and its vitriol and anger against Luther. But his teachings caught fire because the reality was there were a lot of people thinking those things before Luther ever posted it. No one had the courage to do what he did as of yet. And so for the time you get to 1517 to 1521, April 18th, uh, this, this teaching of Luther, who between 17, 1517 and 1521 had become more and more and more convinced of the authority, the sole authority of the Scriptures, and began to teach it with pure authority. And people began to embrace it and, and, and understand it and oppose the church. And so by the time you get to 1521, a council is called. You see, something has to be done with this guy. He's causing us trouble. He's, he's, causing, our, he's causing our collections to go down. People are following him and no longer following us. And so the council is called and Luther is summoned to give an account for his teachings. He's called to Worms and he goes there and it is demanded. He's called before a, a packed house, in fact. Uh, the emperor, Charles V, is there. The religious leaders are there. And it's really not a, a dialogue where they're interested in hearing his thoughts. The main mission is, will you or will you not recant what you've taught and what you've written? Luther responded in many ways in his speech, but I'll give you a couple of excerpts of what he said on that day. He said, however, since I'm a man and not God, I cannot provide my writings with any other defense than that which my Lord Jesus Christ has provided for his teaching. When he had been interrogated concerning his teaching before Annas and had received a buffet from a servant, he said, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. The Lord himself, who knew that he could not err, did not refuse to listen to witnesses against his teaching, even from a worthless slave, how much more ought I, scum that I am, capable of nothing but error, to seek and to wait for any who might wish to bear witness against my teaching. And so, through the mercy of God, I ask your imperial majesty and your illustrious lordships, or anyone of any degree, to defeat my teachings by the writings of the prophets or the gospels. And if you do so, 
I shall be most ready to recant any error, and I shall be the first in casting my own writings into the fire. Now, that's gutsy, right? That's gutsy. He realizes he's an imperfect man and that he writes imperfect things and he could be wrong. And he says, but here's the reality. If you want to charge me with wrong, you're going to have to convince me from where? From the writings of the apostles and the gospels. You convince me from scripture. And if you show it to me there, I'll burn my own books. Fair enough? Was it fair enough to those who had heard? They responded to him by saying, Luther, we demand a plain answer. Will you recant or will you not? To which he said, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I'm convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. It's hard for us this far removed in history to even begin to understand the kind of courage that it took to deliver that kind of a response. Is that me doing that? I know that's driving you crazy like it's driving me crazy, so I'm going to try to fix it. I I can't make any promises, though. But Luther's final authority was the Word of God. And at Worms, he stood and he said, Look, I'm open. I'm open. I can be wrong. But you have to show me from the Word of God. I don't trust the Pope. I don't trust the Council. They're human beings, and they often contradict each other, and it's been proven they've been wrong before. The Scriptures always stand true. Show me here, and I'll turn away. Central to the Protestant Reformation was this issue of the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. That was a central issue around which every other issue revolved. And the Reformers argued, as we pointed out last week, for what is known as sola scriptura, the idea that the Scriptures alone uh, are the authority for life, for salvation, and for living a godly life before the Lord. Everything we need to know is there, and they are the sole authority. Nothing is to be added to them. They don't need to be supplemented. You don't need a special person to interpret them for you. No traditions of men should be added on top of them. We don't need some sort of supernatural experience outside of them to understand truth. We need the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. Well, I would love to be able to say to you that at uh, the Diet of Worms in 1521, the issue was settled. And since then, men have understood that the Bible is a sole authority for life. But you know, and I know, that's not true. That from 1521 until... The year 2017, in which we live, the Word of God has been under constant attack. Constant attack and constant, relentless assault from every direction and every angle. And just like the Roman Catholic Church of Luther's day, there are are forces outside of the Christian church and there are forces within the Christian church of today that are still assaulting the Word of God, still challenging the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Throughout history, it's been attacked from every angle human wisdom can dream of. The Bible has been lied about. It's been misconstrued. It's been misinterpreted. It's been misused. 
The reality is man in his sinful state desperately wants this book to be false. And he wants to be able to show that this book is somehow false because the Bible makes incredible claims on a person's life. The Bible makes incredible claims about itself and it teaches revolutionary truths about who people are and who God is and how we stand accountable before Him. And sinful humanity desperately wants to control his own destiny. Desperately wants to be accountable to absolutely no one. Desperately wants to be able to define his own standards of morality. Desperately wants to exalt himself, to live however he wants, and to submit to no one. And yet the Bible tells us that there's a God who made us all. A God who controls men's destiny. A God to whom all men are and will stand one day face to face accountable. A God who defines morality, who defines truth. And a God before whom one day all men will submit themselves, either voluntarily now or involuntarily in the end. And so the Bible remains in the crosshairs of humanity. And so natural man thinks in his mind, well, if I can't, if I can't prove the Bible false, maybe I can at least water it down till it means nothing and communicates nothing of any significance. If I can't do that, maybe I can just sort of uh, water it down to where people see it as just one of many kinds of truth, but not a sole authority. And even in our day, the attacks continue to come on the Scriptures. They come from without critics, from outside of Christianity, continually and constantly attempt to undercut the Scriptures, to mock the Scriptures, to make fun of the Scriptures, to try and debunk the Scriptures. They attack its authorship. They attack its authenticity. They attack its veracity. They attack its inspiration. They attack its inerrancy. They attack its, attack its clarity. And the attacks are relentless. In recent years, we've seen sort of a revival of old Gnostic heresies from the 3rd century repackaged and presented as, as new challenges to the Scriptures. And people who don't know their history and don't know any better buy them and are duped by them. I read an article recently. CNN article. The title was this. CNN's Piers Morgan, great philosopher of our day, says, says this, quote, The Bible is flawed. As you read the article, it's an article that reflects a conversation in one of his interviews with uh, Rick Warren, pastor in California. And in that conversation, here's what Morgan says. He says it's flawed. Both the Bible and the Constitution were well-intentioned, but they're basically inherently flawed. Hence, the need to amend them. To which, thankfully, Warren replies, I don't believe the Bible is flawed. What I believe is flawed is human opinion because that constantly changes. Good answer, Rick. But Morgan comes back and he says, but you and I know the Bible is in many places a flawed document. And then he goes on to say this, my point to you about gay rights, for example, it's time for an amendment to the Bible. You should compile a new Bible. That's what Morgan says. And sadly, as brash as Piers Morgan happens to be, the philosophy that he's reflecting in that interview is not unique to him. People look at what they want to do and how they want to live, and they see that the Bible teaches an altogether different sort of an ethic, and their response is, well, you need a new Bible. Don't tell me how to live. Amend your Bible. Don't tell me how to lend. Get a new one that doesn't challenge what I want to do. 
Because after all, the world doesn't see the Bible as an authority. Piers Morgan told us that. But it's not just attacks on the outside. You can read the newspapers, you can watch uh, the Internet, and you can see those coming all around. What's more troubling are the challenges that come from within the, the Christian context, from within Christianity. They come out of the mouths of not only those who proclaim to be Christians, but those who proclaim to be Christian ministers. That's even more confusing to the world around us. I read about this week a, a lady, should I say a woman, by the name of Karen Oliveto. She has recently been elevated to the role of bishop in the United Methodist Church in America. If you read Karen Oliveto's theology... Uh, it is incredibly troubling to you because it doesn't reflect anything like what's taught in the Scriptures. She herself is a, an open, uh, how would I describe it? She is an open, non-celibate lesbian practicing. And when you begin to look at her, teach which, how she understands the Scriptures... You find things like this. In a, in a teaching session just a couple of years ago, she cautions her audience against taking too high a view of Scripture. She says, quote, The text, the Bible, is not God. And biblical theology requires addressing both the benefits and the flaws of Scripture. She goes on to look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 where Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats in the end times, and she specifically criticizes the language used by Jesus. Oh, it's just bad language by Jesus. She blames his bad language on the destructive nature of, of, of the destruction of native cultures and religions and a culture of oppression. She goes on to teach on Acts chapter 10 where Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. Do you remember the story of the slave girl is being utilized by, by men because she's possessed by a demon and this demon has given her the ability to foretell the future? And so these men have latched on to this young lady and they're traipsing her around from town to town, reading people's fortunes and telling their future and they're getting rich off of her back. you remember that story? And Paul comes along and by the power of Christ casts the demon out liberates this young lady from the, the oppressive power of this demon. Well, you and I have got that story all wrong, Karen Oliveto says, Bishop Oliveto. She says, Paul was all wrong for casting that demon out of the young lady. In fact, she criticized Paul for that. She encouraged her audience to question the traditional interpretation uh, of this exorcism as an act of libera liberation for the girl. She goes on to say, who knows even if that girl wanted to be liberated. And she goes on to even defend the demon's possession of the slave. I won't read any more of the nonsense that she writes about that text. Or about the nonsense she writes about any other text. Because she's clearly a woman who does not believe in the truth of the Scriptures, the authority of the Scriptures, nor the sufficiency of the Scriptures. She has rejected the Scriptures and therefore has rejected the God who wrote them and is not only not a bishop, she's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is she's elevated within the church as a bishop of a well-known denomination. That's an attack on the Scriptures. It's no different than the attack of the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day. 
There's a whole branch called Progressive Christianity. I ran across this article as well this week. It captivated my attention. It says 16 ways progressive Christians interpret the Bible. When you hear the word progressive Christians, you need to think immediately people who reject the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. That's what it means. When you hear progressive, that's, what it, that's the definition. It wouldn't catch anybody's attention if it said, hey, we're the people who reject the Bible. No one would listen to them. So they call themselves progressive. But I like that he gave us some principles for how they interpret the Bible. At least it makes us understand. Here's a few of them. Number two. Oh, the first one is this. I love this. It's so condescending. It's beautiful. He says, we take the Bible too seriously to read it literally. We take it too seriously to read it literally. Think about that over, over dinner today and see if you can figure it out. But he gets more specific in a second when he says this. We don't think that God wrote the Bible. We don't consider it to be infallible or inerrant. Okay, I get that. Number three, while we're aware of many inconsistencies and contradictions in the Bible, they don't cause us to reject the Bible. They endear us to the Bible. Now, see if that makes any sense to you. We understand that it's flawed and it's got all these errors and we can't really trust it. But instead of making us reject it, that makes us love it all the more. What? Number five, we seek to apply full attention to Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So a lot said in that simple statement. Four authorities placed side by side. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. So the Scriptures then are just but one of four authorities to which we should look. I'm glad he's made that clear for us. He follows it up by saying there's no objective one right way to interpret a passage. A passage. In other words, we read a passage and there's no right way to understand it. You can read it any way you want to read it. Each person has to interpret the text via their own personal experiences, their own education, their own upbringing, their own socio-political context, and more. And my favorite, we also tend to employ a canon within the canon lens, whereby we give greater weight and priority to certain texts over others. Now, that's beautiful. We, we have a canon within a canon. That is to say, we understand that there's a bunch of flaws, so we have some parts that we trust more than others. And he says this, I give the greatest weight to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. No, to, to Mark, Luke, Matthew, John in that order. Certain letters that Paul actually wrote. And I interpret the other books of the Bible according to how they jibe or are in sync with these primary texts. So the arrogance of that. I open the Bible, I walk through it, and I decide which parts I think are true and which parts I'm going to believe. And those are now my primary texts, and I'm going to believe those, and I'm going to judge everything else by what's taught in those. And if it doesn't jibe with what I already believe and have already decided I'm going to believe, I reject it. Again, that's all I can stomach of that. But you get the picture. And you realize, if you have half a brain, the foolishness of that kind of thing. Who could ever know what's true and what's not? Who could ever know? If it's flawed, if it's full of errors, if it has no authority, if it isn't sufficient, who can decide? Do we all just get to go in and figure out which parts are true and which parts are not? It renders the Bible utterly useless for anything positive. It neuters the Bible of any power and authority. And that's why progressive Christianity is dying on the vine. Psalm 119 is all about this. It's all about the truth and authority and sufficiency of Scripture. 
The Bible has been under attack from the 1500s and before. It's under attack just as relentlessly today, outside of Christianity, inside of Christianity. And we need to understand the truth that this psalm displays so that we can stem the tide. And so that just perhaps when the moment of challenge comes in our life, like in Luther's, we'll be able to stand and say, you know what, I'm going to stand on the Word of God. Challenge me if you will, but challenge me from there or else I have nothing to hear or say to you. We saw last week that Psalm 119, 175 verses, organized in this remarkable poem that's alphabetical uh, in the Hebrew language with each line, uh, of, in each group of eight, each line starting with that letter of the alphabet. Just a remarkable uh, artistic, uh, poetic work. But woven throughout all 175 verses is the reality of the authority and the sufficiency of Scriptures. And last week we, we really saw the first piece of this. We saw uh, what the psalmist tells us that the Scriptures are, the nature of the Scriptures. And uh, we won't rehash all that. I'll just put it up on the screen in case you weren't with us last week so you can just see that little piece of the outline. It tells us that the nature of Scripture. What is Scripture? Well, Scripture are the very words of God. That when we look at Scriptures, the Bible proclaims that these are the words of God. It tells us that they are the means of salvation. The psalmist says, it's, it's, your, your word gives me life, he says. He tells us all throughout this, this psalm that your law is true. The sum of your words is truth. All of your words are true. All of your words are truth. Not some canon within a canon that we get to figure out all of them. The sum of it all is true. Goes on to tell us that what we find here is truth that is unchanging, that it's eternal. He says, Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You are righteous forever. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It's forever, it's unchanging. He says, They're invaluable, more, more precious than a pile of gold and silver is your truth. And he goes on to, to proclaim that the scriptures satisfy us unlike anything else. That's what the Scriptures are. But this psalm tells us more than what they are. It tells us what the Scriptures do, what they accomplish. What, what, what has God empowered them to do in the lives and the hearts and the souls of those who open up the book and read it? And that's what I want us to look at with the time that we have this morning. And we'll just do this very, very quickly. Beginning in verse 9, it gives us the first thing that the Scripture does. It keeps us pure. It keeps us pure. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And in verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the effects that the scriptures have on those who study them and read them is it has a purifying effect on the soul, a purifying effect on the heart. The scriptures, the scriptures purify us. They guard us in the truth. You want to know how to live a pure life? Go to the scriptures. You want to know how to walk in purity? Read the Bible. You want to understand what's right and wrong, what's moral, what's immoral? You find that in the Scriptures. It defines morality. It is an anchor for purity. And one of the greatest struggles in our culture, in our society, is trying to determine what is right and what is wrong. If you read the newspaper, if you... Do people get newspapers still? They do print those, right, and deliver them at home still? Well, you can find them online, too. And if you go to online news, anywhere you find news, or just in pop culture, listen to the conversations that people have on talk shows and on news shows about right and wrong, about morality and immorality. And listen to the sort of nonsense that you hear via argumentation of how people are trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. It's confusing. 
That's confusing. But the Word of God says we, we have right and wrong here. You are not to be pure. You are not who's right. You are not to be moral. Read the Scriptures. They'll show you. I mean, there are issues that plague our nation, and we cannot seem to find direction. Is abortion moral or is it immoral? Is homosexuality a, a sexuality a sinful lifestyle or is it just an alternative lifestyle? Is it wrong to euthanize critically ill patients or is it loving and humane? And there's a multitude of other moral dilemmas that we face. How do we determine what's right? How do we determine what's wrong? How do we determine what's moral? How do we determine what's immoral? Psalm 119 says, you want to know what's moral? Go to the Scriptures. You want to know what's pure? Open up your Bible. Because God has defined these things already. He keeps us pure. There was a time in American history where at least the foundational sort of moral code of our culture was built on biblical principles earlier on, much earlier on than now. It's debatable, and people argue about this all the time. You can probably have a perspective on this, whether or not America was ever something that could actually be considered a a Christian nation. Uh, But what I think is not arguable is at least that the initial moral code that underpinned how we understood right and wrong as a nation was built off of biblical truth and biblical principles. Initially, that's how we began. But long ago as a nation, we cut ourselves free from that anchor. And now we just sort of find ourselves adrift and blown away by the ever-changing winds of our culture around us. And we're reaping the whirlwind around us, right? You see the chaos that's going on all around. And you'd think people would wake up. And you would think that that people would, would, would realize that this is foolishness that we're dealing with in our culture this relativism, this idea that you decide what's right for you and I'll decide what's right for me and there's no set standard of what's right or wrong or moral or immoral. We just all get to figure it out for ourselves and the only, the only hard and fast rule is that we have to tolerate everybody else and we can't challenge anybody else's belief system. How can that result in anything other than anarchy and chaos? That's what it turns into. I talked to you about the United Methodist Bishop a few moments ago. There's been some, some uh, uh, pushback in the United Methodist Church uh, about her elevation to the bishophood, or the bishopship. Somebody fill me in on that later, being a bishop. And uh, the church came out and said, essentially, in, in one particular meeting, that, that this was an illegitimate thing and that it needs to be reversed. And uh, there was an article in the, in the, uh, the Huffington Post, of all things, by a, a non-religious writer who was completely troubled by that. And he wrote this long article about why that was nonsense. And I just want to, to give you a couple of quotes because this gives us the idea of what I'm talking about when you understand that the culture has no sense for the Bible being a guide for purity. He says this in, in Romans 1, which is one of the texts the church used to challenge this elevation. Paul lo- loses a tirade about some unnamed people who turned their backs on God and indulged in Roman-style orgies. And a few other places, Paul huffs and puffs about those who abused themselves with mankind. Don't you love how he describes this? Huffs, I, Paul huffs and puffs? Maybe he did, I don't know. He says this, if Paul is the, quote, Christian teaching that overrides informed, reasoned, and compassionate justice, then how then 
can the, de- the denomination turn its back on the, when the sexless saint from Tarsus declares to the married, I give this command. He goes on to say, how can you challenge this when you don't challenge uh, a divorce, which is also forbidden in the Scriptures? But I don't want to go into all that. All I want to point out is he says that Paul is a Christian teaching that overrides, which is his authority, informed, reasoned, and compassionate justice, which he defines elsewhere apart from the Scriptures. He goes on to say this. I'm trying to help you see that the Bible may be many things. A historical treasure, poetical comfort, and sacred Scripture. But as a moral guide, it's hopeless. Some claim to follow its commands literally, but they deceive themselves. No one can do so. For the Bible is a hodgepodge of contradictions and morally obscure and outrageous injunctions. And he concludes by saying, I hope that I've shown the Methodists and all other religionists that they would do well to abandon the effort to apply scriptural codes to contemporary life. Draw inspirations by all means. But recognize that the hard work of thinking through right and wrong remains a moral duty for each of us. Do you get it? Oh, The scriptures have historical value and poetic value. And they're good for inspiration. But as a moral guide, useless, he says. And in the face of that, Psalm 119 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The scriptures keep us pure. You want to live a pure life? You want to know what's right and what's wrong? Do you want to live with integrity? Do you want to live with morality? Do you want to live a life uh, that, that reflects truth? You orient it by the Scriptures because they make us pure. What else does the Scripture do? It counsels our souls. Look at verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Where do people go when they need counsel? Where do we go when we need advice? Where do we go when we need somebody to to, to tell us something that will help us through whatever the situation is that we find ourselves in in the moment? Psalm 119 says... The psalmist writes, I go to the Scriptures because the Scriptures are my counselor. When I need counsel, when I need to understand what direction I need to move, when I need to understand how I ought to be thinking, when I need to understand the things that are confusing in my life, he says, I go to the Scriptures and the Scriptures are for me a counselor. They help me sort through the confusing things in my life. There are people all around that are called biblical counselors. And you know what a biblical counselor is? A biblical counselor is someone that you can go see, that you can sit down with, who can open up the Scriptures and help you look at your situation in light of what the Scriptures teach. And help you understand what the Scriptures say about what you're dealing with. And help you understand how to apply the text of Scripture to your current situation so that you might know how to navigate. That's what a biblical counselor does. That is the only thing of value that a biblical counselor can do is to help you look at the Scriptures and see how the Scriptures provide counsel to your situation. Their role is not to provide additional counsel that's not found in the Scriptures. Their role is not to provide some sort of supplemental wisdom that you don't find anchored in the Scriptures, although many assume those roles. Let me just give you a warning right now. If you're ever struggling and you're ever needing counsel and you don't feel comfortable going to your pastor 
uh, for that kind of counsel and you want to see a counselor, but you're concerned about seeing a Christian counselor, you need to understand that you're looking for a biblical counselor. And the only role that person can serve you is to open up the Scriptures and help you see your situation in light of what Scripture teaches. You got that? You need to understand that because there's a whole world of people out there that advertise and promote themselves as Christian counselors who do not believe what I just told you. I was counseling a couple a year and a half ago, right about, a young couple who had been married just a couple of years and they were struggling like many young couples do in the early years of marriage. And in this particular situation, there was a young man who was incredibly immature. He was doing foolish things. He was living in outright rebellious and sinful ways and it was sabotaging his marriage, wrecking his marriage. It was destroying his wife. It was creating all sorts of other hardships. He had wrecked her trust. He had wrecked all sorts of pieces and parts of their marriage. And I had been meeting with the both of them separately and we had been looking at the Scriptures together and on both fronts saying, let's look at, our, let's look at your life and let's see what the Scriptures say and let's see how you're walking with the Lord and let's see what we can find here to help us navigate forward. And I had begun working with this young man to identify the sinful choices and habits of his life and he was seeing them and they were, the light was beginning to come on. But like all of us who are sinners, he was resisting those things in his heart, Right? But we were working on it. We were making progress. Then all of a sudden, he gets the idea to go see a Christian counselor. Someone in town, his insurance pointed him in that direction, by the way. I suspect it was because he didn't like what he was being told by me to go find someone else. Found a Christian counselor here in West Ashley. And I'll tell you his name, Dr. Monty Knight. Don't ever go see him for counsel. Within one session, within one session, this Christian counselor had given this young man permission to divorce his wife and released him to do so, and that's exactly what he did. The first session, have you ever thought maybe you don't need to be married? Maybe you guys shouldn't have ever gotten married. Maybe you just need to divorce. I'm a sinful human being, and it took remarkable restraint to not drive to his office and punch him in the face. That's what I wanted to do in my flesh. I'm honest with you. It would have been wrong, but it would have been gratifying. It's wrong because it's someone under the guise of Christianity lying to a young couple. And instead of leading them toward righteousness, he has led them into sin. That's devastating. Where do we go for counsel? We go to the Word of God. The Word of God is our counsel. If you go to somebody and they're telling you things that don't line up with the truth of Scripture, you get away from them as fast as you can. This is Scripture. Your testimonies are my counselors. They're to my delight, the psalmist says. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. The word of God strengthens us. Who hasn't been weak in their life in particular moments and seasons and circumstances and found themselves alone at night in their bed, opening up their Bible and reading the words of the text of Scripture and finding strength for their soul? What Christian has never had that experience? We've all had it. The psalmist understood sorrow. He understood weakness. He, he knew what it was like to feel weak and helpless. He knew what it was like to be depressed and discouraged. You can read that in Psalm 119. He knew what it was like to be afraid and unsure of the future. He knew all of those things. But he said, when I'm feeling those things, I go to the Scriptures and they strengthen me when I read them. They give me strength. 
The Word of God is powerful to strengthen His people when they're struggling. I've seen this reality over and over again. The, the grieving widow who's through tears, having lost her beloved spouse, opening up the, the Bible and, and reading the words that the Lord gave and the, the Lord has taken away. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Finding strength from that. The Word of God strengthens us. Where do you go when you're weak? Who do you talk to? Where do you go to find strength? Do you go to people or do you go to the Word of God? The psalmist says it's the Word of God that strengthens us. My soul melts from sorrow. I mean, I am burdened down to overwhelming. What do I do? I find strength in your Word. Luther said, all that matters is that God's Word be given free course to encourage and enliven hearts so that they don't become burdened. That's what the Scriptures do. They, they encourage and enliven and strengthen hearts. The Word of God also provides wisdom. Your commandments makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 98, verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. He tells us if you want to be wise, then you go to the Scriptures, because it's the Scriptures that make us wise. You understand that wisdom is not the same thing as education, right? Not the same things. A person can be incredibly educated, but be completely unwise. Education is about understanding information and having a grasp of a body of knowledge. In other words, a person can go to a modern a liberal arts university and get a degree in some, some thing. They can get a degree in history and they can come out with sort of a, a mastery of the content of history. Be very educated, but it doesn't mean that they're wise. You see, wisdom is a combination of two things. It's knowledge of what's true and right combined with discernment on how to apply that to the circumstances of life. Wisdom is two things. It's knowledge of what's true and right, and it's a discerning ability to know how to apply that truth to the particular circumstances of life. That's what wisdom is. And you don't find that at a university. You find wisdom in the Word of God. American parents are very, very concerned that their kids get a good education. We start talking about it from the time that they're born. Most responsible parents from the time their kids are born start putting away a couple quarters or a dollar a week, right? Because you know it's coming. You want that, that son or that daughter one day to be educated because you understand that to function in the world and the culture in which we live, you need an education. So you prepare for that. And parents invest countless hours and dollars making sure their kids get in the best schools. On average, right now, a degree at a public four-year university in-state costs about $58,000. If you don't have any sort of aid. A degree at a private four-year university, on average, about $104,000. And all parents break out in a sweat right now. I see you. Why do we do that? Why do we invest that kind of money? Because our kids need an education. And we care deeply about their education. And we think about and we scheme for and we plan for and we save for their education. And I, I wonder, how much do we plan for and how much do we scheme for the development of their wisdom? Because it's not the same thing. What have we gained if we've planned this detailed sort of a pathway for them to get a great education, but we've planned nothing in their life for how to obtain wisdom? So that they come out on the other hand, a doctor who's graduated first in their class from their medical school, but they lack wisdom. 
What have we accomplished? We've accomplished nothing. I talked to a father who was grieving just two weeks ago. He was talking about his daughter who had gone off to Duke University. His daughter was raised in a home where she at least had some exposure to biblical truth. Her parents certainly taught her the basics of morality. She had seen some hypocrisy, of course. But she understood the foundation. A wonderful relationship with her parents. And this father, with tears in his eyes, said to me, You know, she's been at Duke for two years, and now she won't even speak to us. She won't even call home. And when we call, she won't answer the phone. I don't know what's happened to her there, but she's rejected everything that she was taught and turned her back on her family. She's getting a great education, I'm sure, from Duke in whatever field she pursues. But she lacks wisdom because she's rejected the source of true wisdom, the Scriptures which give us wisdom. True wisdom begins with Jesus Christ, and the Word of God displays Him for us. And it says, you want wisdom, look to Christ. You want wisdom, come to Christ. You want wisdom, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Him, Colossians 2 says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's how you become wise, you come to know Christ. Let me give you the last couple things here. The Scriptures guide and direct us. This is so obvious, I won't say much about it, and our time is up. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's such an easy illustration, isn't it? The idea is we don't know which way to go. We don't have direction for our lives. How do you get direction? You go to the Word of God, and it's like a light, like a flashlight that shines into your life, and it shows you the pathway forward. It shows you the obstacles in your way so you can avoid them. It shows you a clear pathway to get to where you need to go. The Word is a lamp and a light. It guides us. Where do we go when we need guidance? Where do we go when we need direction? Where do we go when we need to understand how to make choices in our life? We go to the Word of God. It provides that for us. It guides us. It's like the rudder on a ship. It's a small thing, but it directs the whole course of, of our life if we trust it. And then finally, it helps us. It helps us. Verse 170, let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let your rules help me. Where do you go when you need help? Where do you go when you need help in your life? You go to the word of God. We've all found help in the scriptures, haven't we? It's the father who's lost his job who in his heart is stressed out about how he's going to pay the bills, make the mortgage. The real circumstances of life have come, and he's feeling desperate for help. And he opens up the Word of God, and he begins to read the Gospels. And he hears from the pages of the Scripture the voice of Jesus saying, Look at the birds in the air. Look at the flowers out there in the field. Perfectly clothed abundantly fed, and they do nothing to accomplish all that. My Father takes care of all of them. How much more does my Father love you, His child? How much more will He not give you everything you need? That's the kind of help we need in that moment, isn't it? And all of a sudden, the Father says, you know, that's right. Christ has promised to supply all of our needs. So instead of being anxious and instead of being filled with fear and anxiety, 
we'll bow before the Lord and we'll make a choice to trust Him. And we'll look with anxious hope as to how He delivers the things we need in spite of the moment of crisis we find ourselves now. That's how the Word of God helps us. That's how it helps us. But for it to help us, for it to direct us, for it to make us pure and give us wisdom and strengthen us, we have to actually read it. We have to open it. I close with this. The Scriptures tell us, this, this Psalm tells us, 119 tells us, we have to store up His Word in our hearts. We're to meditate on His words. We're not to forget His words. J.C. Ryle, Anglican Bishop, said this. And I love how he writes because it's the kind of writing that snaps me to attention. He says we must be diligent readers of our Bibles. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. We shall never fight a good fight if we don't use it as our principal weapon. The Word is a lamp for our feet. We shall never keep the King's highway to heaven if we don't journey by its light. There's not enough Bible reading among us. It's not sufficient to have the book. We must actually read it and pray over it ourselves. It will do us no good if it only lies still in our houses. We must actually be familiar with its contents and have its text stored in our memories and our minds. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. And I know that comes off as awfully just moralistic. But when our lives are a mess and we can't understand what's right from wrong and we have no direction and we're confused about how to navigate forward and we're constantly discouraged, we're constantly depressed, we're constantly anxious and our Bibles sit closed on a shelf somewhere and we wonder why. Because the Bible is the power of God for just those moments and we neglect it to our own harm to our own arm. You say, well, I don't have time for that. I'm a busy person. I know you are. Except I read a statistic today, not today, yesterday, that told me something about you and me. It says this, on average, Americans, in a given week, and this is not an exaggeration, actual statistic, in one week's time, 74 hours of screen time of some sort of screen time in a week. Small screen, big screen, screen. We spend 74 hours a week in front of a screen and we have no time to open the Bible. That excuse doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. When I use it, it doesn't work for you. And one day when we stand accountable before the Lord, it won't work there for any of us. What a gift we have. What a treasure we have in the Word of God. Why, my friends, why? Don't we this week open it up and read it? Why don't we open it up and read it? Do you know, if you made a commitment right now to read 15 minutes a day, just to read 15 minutes a day, average person reads about 250 words a minute. If you read 15 minutes a day, this is another statistic, not apart from the Bible. If you read 15 minutes a day, for one year, you would read the equivalent of 20 to 30 books in one year. Did you know that? 15 minutes a day, that's all. 30, 20 to 30 books. If you applied that same statistic to the Word of God, you could easily finish it 
at least once and well on your way to a second in a year. 15 minutes. 74 hours of screen time. 15 minutes. Can you make that commitment this morning? Can you, can you do that before the Lord? I challenge you to. Let's pray. Lord, we are we're convicted by our neglect of your word. That's the reality of it. Because everything I've said, most of the folks who've heard it know. I haven't delivered anything that's really new this morning. And yet neglect of your word is one of those things that um, it's private. Nobody else really sees it. Nobody else really knows it. Of course, they can see it in our behavior over time. But at least in the short time, in the short frame, they don't. So we can neglect it and no one will know. But I pray that this morning, Lord, you would help us to see that when we neglect your word, we neglect the greatest treasure of the earth that that any man could ever have. When we keep your word closed on the shelf and we run to other sources of information for counsel, for strength, for help, for wisdom, we should never be surprised that our lives end up a mess. That our sanctification stalls, moves backwards. And yet we do it so often. Convict us this morning of the truth of your word and the authority and the sufficiency of your word. Help us, Lord, in these quiet moments as we close our time of worship to make a commitment to you at least 15 minutes a day to open up your word and read. that we might see what kind of power you unleash in our lives through a simple commitment. Help us, we pray, to be Bible people, to be a Bible church. For your honor and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.